0: Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. If you're using the church Bible, it's page 1006. Hebrews chapter 9, we're reading at verse 11. And you'll see there's a movement in the text of verse 11 signaled by the first word. Word, the Word of Christ, be our rule. May your Spirit be our teacher, and may your greater glory be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I know that some of you are coming to this text fresh this morning, and therefore I'll bear that in mind as we proceed. But one of the words that Kind of emerges if you read this chapter uh, again and again is the word conscience. You see it back in verse 9 of this chapter where he talks about some offerings that cannot, cannot perfect the conscience. And then in verse 14, uh, purify our conscience from. Dead works to serve the living and God, to, and the living God. This word conscience. In uh, Shakespeare's writings, those of you who have read Shakespeare, you know that ma- many of his writings have provided aphorisms or phrases that have carried on into the English language. Very often, out of their context, not bearing the significance they had when he wrote it, but nonetheless are familiar to us and. One of those is the expression that comes from Hamlet, conscience doth make cowards of us all. Conscience doth make cowards of us all. And what uh, what Hamlet is reflecting on is as he anticipates or as he thinks about what it would be to take away his own life. Conscience is there with this nagging feeling of guilt, of accountability. What is there beyond death is there judgment? And if there is judgment, then there is something to answer for. And I suppose by extension we can say this, that the work of conscience that reminds us that we are failures, that reminds us that we are that we have fallen short of the glory of God, conscience that is a monitor of the soul, that that brings to our memory the record that we have written, as it were, in our lives, comes at most inconvenient times to us. Sometimes conscience keeps us from doing our duty, from saying the words that need to be said to someone before, before we say them. We think, well, I'm not qualified to say these things. I'm as bad as they are. Or there are actions that need to be taken, and we don't take them because we think to ourselves, well, the actions may as well be taken against me as against another. Conscience makes cowards of us all. But Why does conscience make cowards of us all? It is because the business of conscience, where we still have one, is to remind us of Sin. Now, there's a good thing about conscience. Good thing about conscience is if you have one, if it does kick in from time to time, at least you can be reassured that you haven't hardened your heart. So, there's a good side to conscience. Well, the the writer is thinking about this matter of the conscience, and he is contrasting the way in which the Old Testament way of doing things and worship and the New Testament revelation in Christ Jesus alters the effect on our conscience, that is, on our sense of sin in our lives. Uh, he, uh, he has been describing the earthly holy place. You can see that in the beginning of this chapter if you have your Bible open, the earthly holy place. He's been taking us back in time, taking us back into the Old Testament period, and he's been reflecting on the way people worshipped God then. They worshipped the right God. They worshipped God in God's way, but there was something incomplete. There was something temporary in the way in which they were worshipping God. But now there has become a major shift, a historical shift, an epochal shift in history. It signified by that adversative in the beginning of the sentence, but, but when Christ appeared. Everything he has been saying in this chapter to this point has been reflecting on that Old Testament experience of the people of God that has left people with an imperfect conscience before God that has not dealt with the nagging, repeatedly insistent reminder that we fall short of God's presence, that we cannot by ourselves and in our own nature find a way in to God's company and God's presence. But, he says, but something new has occurred. And as he says this great word, he directs us then to the difference that Christ makes. Do you see that? But when Christ appeared. As we've been going through uh, Hebrews, I'm thinking about Luke. Christmas is coming. Not that I'm thinking a lot about Christmas, but uh, you, you know that I get a bit excited about that. So, that's how Luke got in there. As we've gone through Hebrews, we've learned what you would have learned in Luke if you'd gone there, that uh, the way in which Jesus is described is of very great significance. So, whenever we find Jesus described as the Son, we are being reminded that He is eternally God, that He is God of the Father. He is eternally God of God. Or when we find the Lord Jesus described as Jesus, we're being reminded of his very real humanity that he has of his mother. He is fully human. He is like us in every respect, tempted like us in every area, exposed to all the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune as we are as people. And then this word Christ, Christ is not a name but a title. It brings together both these other things. It brings together Christ as God and as man. He is the God-man. He is the Messiah of Israel. He is the long-expected, much-talked-about coming one who would come into the world and would act as our mediator. That is a go-between, just as He is in Himself the God-man, so He is for God and for humanity acting on our behalf as human beings, in relation to God. He is the Christ. And that's the word that he uses here. He's thinking of the God-man as he appears in human flesh as Jesus Christ, when Christ appeared. And he wants to talk to us this morning about what Christ did for us, his work for us, On the cross, as we shall see. So he focuses on the place and the value and the effect of Christ's work for his people. Well, think of the place of Christ's work when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that are to come. He's just been writing uh, about the, the tent, the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Let me bring you up to speed if you weren't with us the last few weeks. In the Old Testament, when God appears to Moses on Mount Sinai and gives him the law, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments were given to show people how it is that we all fall short of the glory of God. You read the Ten Commandments and you're being hammered ten times by the Word of God. So God don't, not only gave him the Ten Commandments, which we call the moral law, He also gave him the ceremonial law, which was the means by which people who have broken the moral law of God are able still to have a relationship with God. And this ceremony all focuses on a structure, a tent, a tent that is divided into two parts, uh, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. Everything about that tent is necessary for us in order to understand what it is that God is going to do for us in the future. So it's given temporarily to Israel, but it's given so that the parts will will begin to describe the profile of what God is going to do far in the distant future. So on the Day of Atonement, for example, which is in the writer's mind in this chapter, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer a sacrifice, and then he would take the blood, and he would go into the Holy of Holies, through the holy place, into the Holy of Holies, and he would offer it to God there. Now, there are elements to that. Who goes into God? Well, only the high priest, not all the others, only the high priest out of all of Israel. Where does he go? He goes into the holy of holies, the holiest place of all. How does he go there? He goes there with the blood of a sacrifice. When does he go there? He goes there once a year. And fifthly, why does he go there? He goes there to deal with sin. Now, all of that ritual— All of the rites associated with that tabernacle in all of their constituent parts are necessary for us to get our heads around what God is doing when he says, but when Christ appeared. Because when Christ appeared, he did in one inseparable, indivisible action." everything that was represented in all the constituent parts of the work of the tabernacle. He comes as the high priest. He comes to offer a sacrifice. He comes to take the effect of that sacrifice into the very holiest place of all. He comes to turn away the wrath of God. He comes to be the means by which men and women, boys and girls, can be reconciled to God. He comes to do all of that. And he does it all at once, in himself, in an indivisible way. But you need all of those other things to explain and tease out what each part means. He comes to be our representative. So this is how he puts it here. When Christ appeared, we might say when he arrived, he was always coming. He was always being pred- pre- predicted in the Old Testament. That When he came, everything changed. Do you see that? He came as the high priest of the good things that have already come, he says. The good things that were expected, The good things that were predicted. What kind of things are we thinking about? You find them scattered all through the Old Testament. There is uh, pardon, free pardon for sin. Reconciliation, where there's hostility between God and people, that's over. And there's reconciliation, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Righteousness, righteousness which we lack and God has, that will be given to God's people. Holiness, holiness that God is and we are not, holiness is given to His people. And adoption, the most scintillatingly wonderful of all of the blessings that are given to us, all of these are among the good things promised in the Old Testament and given to us. And Jesus Christ is the high priest of good things to come, the things that have already come. He is the heir of all things, we're told in Romans chapter 8. His work is the source from which all the blessings of the new covenant flow. Here's how Paul puts it, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us all things with him? Now these things are ours now, but they're not complete yet. They're possessions we have now, but we don't have the perfection of them yet. You just take one of those benefits, the benefit of adoption. What does it mean to be adopted? It means that we become the sons of God. Men and women, boys and girls, become the sons of God. Why is that important? Why is it important that we say about every Christian believer, whether they're male or female, that we are all sons of God? It's because as a result of the fall and patriarchy that has dominated human society, normally throughout the ages of the world, girls did not inherit the estate. It went to the boy if there were a boy it was a boy and a girl it was the boy you got it in christianity everybody men and women boys and girls are sons of god because they are heirs of the inheritance everyone every believer we are children therefore heirs of god and co-heirs with christ isn't that a remarkable thing And right now, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit is the pledge and the down payment of an ineffable completeness that awaits us in glory. You take our adoption. The Apostle John, when he writes uh, in his first letter, 1 John chapter 3, he writes to believers and he says, beloved, now are we the children of God, the sons of God. and so we are. He adds that little underscoring. But then he goes on to say this, it does not appear what we shall be. In other words, it's not obvious to people that we're the sons of God. They look at us, they see people like themselves. Maybe a bit weirder than they are, but nonetheless people like themselves. They see human beings who have the same Issues that everyone else has in their lives, all the things that flesh is there too. we have them. We, we experience them in our lives just as they do. It does not appear, it is not obvious what we are going to be as the children of God. But when He appears, John goes on to say, when He appears, we shall be like Him, that is like the Lord Jesus, for we shall see Him as He is. So, all these things are ours now, and they're going to be ours in their perfection when Jesus comes again. So, let's look at it again. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places. Now, what is this greater, more perfect tent? It's obviously a reference to the tabernacle that we've been considering from the Old Testament. What is this greater, more perfect tent? The the answer, actually, is in that phrase in brackets in our English translation, though not in the Greek, of course, not made with hands. That phrase comes from Daniel chapter 2, where King Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream, you remember, that keeps him up at nights? He has it night after night after night. He's getting more and more upset about it. He has this dream. He he asks his advisors if they will tell him not just the interpretation of the dream, but he makes it really hard for them and asks them to tell him what it was that he dreamt. The advisors were up for telling him an explanation, but they were not up for telling him what he had dreamt because they knew perfectly well they couldn't. And eventually, Daniel the God's prophet, is able to come onto the scene and he interprets the king's dream. He says, what you saw was a colossus figure that was made of, composed of various metals, gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And this is what it meant. Daniel says, that figure, that colossus that you saw in your dream represents all the mighty empires of this world. As the book of Daniel goes on, we discover the gold represents Babylon, the silver, the Medo-Persians, the, the, uh, the bronze represents Greece, and the iron represents the Roman Empire. Daniel sees this hundreds of years before these empires are in place, and he tells the king the fulfillment of this dream. And he says, in the days of that fourth kingdom, there will be a little stone from a mountain, the mountain usually a site of a holy place or a a sanctuary or a temple, a little stone that will come rolling down the mountain and smash that great colossus to pieces. Daniel says to the king, that's the kingdom of God. When the kingdom of God comes, it spells the end to the kingdoms of this world. It spells the end to the machinations of the people in power. It spells an end, ultimately, to all those forces that, that are abroad in the world, that are inimitable to human nature, inimical to human well-being, and that bring only pain and sorrow and ultimately death to the world. Well, Jesus identified himself as that stone. Jesus identified himself as the stone from the mountain. He identified himself as the final temple, as the holy place. He identified his body as the temple which would be torn down and then raised again in three days bringing an end to the worship in the earthly temple and establishing a new temple. In John chapter 1, we read this regularly at Christmas, when he came, became flesh, he tabernacled or tented amongst us. The psalmist quotes the son saying, a body you have prepared for me. So in eternity, before he came to visit us, there was the preparation of the Father. At His conception, there is the work of the Holy Spirit. As Gabriel told Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the son to be, child to be given to you will be called holy. He is the Son of God. In every respect, the word sanctuary is properly and fittingly applied to the body of Christ and especially to His resurrection. His human body was formed as a creative work of God in the womb of the Virgin Mary. His resurrection body was a direct action of the Holy Spirit and power the Father, Son, and Spirit all involved in the resurrection of the Son. And James, the Apostle, The leader of the Jerusalem church quotes from Amos chapter 9, and he quotes this promise that God made before the resurrection, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David, I will rebuild its ruins. And he argues that Jesus is the latter-day, end-time cosmic tabernacle in whom believing Jews and believing Gentiles throughout the cosmos may worship God he is in himself, in his human nature, the greater and more perfect tent. In its conception, in its framing, in its endowments by the Holy Spirit, and because of its union and subsistence in the divine person of the eternal Son, his humanity, especially in its resurrection, is far more glorious than anything on earth alone. Could be. John Owen says, His human nature doth more excel the old tabernacle than the sun does the meanest star. Jesus, holy, harmless, and undefiled, you see? He is the greater and more perfect tent. He is in himself the tabernacle, with all the things we associate going on there, all those various elements all combine themselves in one solitary life. He is the high priest. He is the sacrifice. He is the sweet smell that goes up to the throne of God that announces that our sacrifice has been accepted. He is the one who turns away the wrath of God. He is the one who reconciles us to God. He is the one through whom we are adopted into the family of God. It all comes together in one single climactic action in the Son of God for us, for us. What is the value then of Christ's work for us? Well, again, He contrasts the past and the future. He entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of His own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. He's saying this. Christ as our high priest does not act on the basis of the blood of animals like the old priesthood did. Rather He acts on the basis of His own blood. He, the sacrificer, is also the sacrifice. He who is the priest is also the victim. There's no other party involved here. In every respect, he does all that is necessary to bring us to God. When it says that he went into heaven or into the holy places with his own blood, you're not to understand that with the crass literalism of thinking that he took physically blood into heaven. No. It's talking about blood used the way the Bible uses it the Bible uses the word blood in a very special way. It uses it of blood shed in death, life violently taken. Here is the penalty of sin duly enacted in Christ and the price of sin fully paid for by Christ in Himself for us. And it's as our sacrifice, having acted on our behalf, having acted as our representative, having gone there as our substitute, that he continues and he goes into the holy places, the holiest of all. Verse 24 tells us he entered heaven itself, the dwelling place of God. We read this morning in our call to worship from Revelation 4, if we continue to read into Revelation chapter 5, John, who's given a vision of that great cosmic throne and the one seated on the throne, is also given a vision of the resurrected Christ. We're told in chapter 5, for example, that there in front of the throne there was a scroll, And the scroll was written back, front, inside, all over the place. In that scroll, there are the promises of God, the purposes of God. There is the rule of the world. There's everything that's going to happen in the world, the wars, the peace, the proclamation of the gospel, the persecution of the church, the future of humanity. Everything is caught up there in that scroll. And the question in heaven is, who has the authority to open the scroll? Who has the right to unfold history as it happens? Who has the sovereign right to do that? Nobody. Nobody was found. John begins to weep. There's nobody who who has the authority to take a grip of human history, especially the history of the church. And he hears a voice. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. The Messiah has conquered. John turns to see this mighty lion come fresh from the fight, and he says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had just been slain. Here is the conqueror coming. How is he conquered? He is conquered by his blood. He is conquered by his violent death. He is conquered by His substitutionary work of atonement, of turning aside the wrath on behalf of His people. He has done all this for us. He has done it all. He returns. Here He is now, assuming that throne, the throne of heaven. He is now seated in all majesty. And those who are around the throne begin singing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You ransomed people for God. That's why it's able to say that He has gone there on our behalf. And so different, you see, from the old covenant As the hymn writer has put it, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give a guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our guilt away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. He shed his blood. For his people, he made a sacrifice. The text tells us he did it once for all. Look at verse 12. He entered once for all. Once for all sacrifice, never to be repeated, unprecedented, unique. That one action achieved everything that was promised. All of those good things came about because of this once-for-all action. He is not in heaven eternally offering Himself again and again and again in sacrifice to God. Once for all. Here's how Peter put it. Christ died once for our sins. Here's how Paul puts it. In that He died for sin, He died once. And here it says... He entered once for all. And what did He do in entering once for all? He secured our eternal redemption. You think of that. He did what was necessary. Liam Neeson in Taken. My wife's favorite movie. Don't tell her I told you that. Liam Neeson in, in Taken. They've taken his daughter. It's his daughter. First time. First movie. That's right. And he does everything. It's brilliant. It's br- brilliant. He does everything that needs to be done to get her back. To release her. To deliver her. Well, good as Liam Neeson is... The Lord Jesus is in a different category altogether. He has done absolutely everything necessary to deliver His people, to rescue His people, including laying down His own life to do that, to get redemption. See, the problem is there's a taken to. But there is no taken to when it comes to what Jesus did. Eternal redemption. There's no retaking you what does this redemption involve, this release from? Well, it's, it's released from bondage, the bondage of fear of death, wages of sin, condemnation by the law, corruption of the body. It covers everything that we are and have in this life. Redeemed from all of that, all of that, we begin by being Delivered from fear of death because no longer is death the end, it's the pathway into glory. We're delivered from the wages of sin. The wages of sin is eternal death. We're delivered from that. We're rescued from that. The the law of God condemns us. We're, We're taken out from under condemnation because there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Our bodies are corrupted. They will die. They will be buried. But they will be raised again. There is redemption for our bodies, and by extension, there is redemption for nature. Nature, red in tooth and claw, nature in this cycle of bondage to natural laws and downward progression, nature that has been spoiled by humanity's influence, nature itself, we're told by Paul in Romans 8, is on tiptoes waiting for the redemption of the children of God. We have eternal redemption by virtue of what Jesus has done. that brings me very briefly to the last bit. In verses 13 to 14, I know it looks like a lot, but we're going to go through it very quickly. The purpose of the old way was to symbolize external cleansing from sin. The purpose of the old way was just to qualify the people in the church To be worshippers. That's basically all it was. So there you are, you're outside. You want to get in? Well, there has to be a sacrifice offered. Then you can come in and you can worship. So it was all exterior, all external. But in Christ, something far deeper, going far further, has been accomplished. He offered himself, it says, to God through the eternal Spirit. Christ offered himself. The writer is thinking of Christ in his entire person as the mediator, the God-man. And as the mediator, he's taken on the form of a servant. And as the mediator, he was filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. And under the influence of Holy Spirit, he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. By the Holy Spirit, he went into the desert to be tempted by the devil. By the Holy Spirit, he was led on the path of obedience, strengthened in order to be the victim in our behalf. There you see the Father, Son, and Spirit all involved in the action of Jesus' life and in the work of Jesus' death and resurrection. The indivisible work of the Trinity is evident there in his human work. And as a result as a result of offering himself without spot to God, he is able to purify our conscience. To purify our conscience from dead works that don't amount to anything as far as God is concerned. Deliver us from that. Purify our conscience from those things that we have done, the actions we have done, that haven't brought life to us but have brought death to us and dread to us that keep us awake at night, that worry us, that shame us. He purifies our conscience so that we can serve God. Not just come into the building and worship, but serve God from our hearts. That's the work that Christ has done. That's the effect of what He's done. Conscience doth make cowards of us all. What we need is that deep cleaning that only Christ gives. that puts us in a new position in relation to God, whereby we're then freed to work the works that God has ordained that we should work, to live lives of service to the living God that bring glory to His name. That's what Christ has done by His work. For you. And it changes your perspective. It changes the way you think about yourself. It changes the way you think about the world. It changes the way you think about the future. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that today something of the wonder of the work of Christ for us would stagger our minds and our understanding and leave us humbled, Leave us full of joy as we relish in the love that you showed us in him, in him who is your human face, in him who is our Savior. We ask this in his strong name. Amen.